Section 20 of the Cambridge Modern History, Volume 1, The Renaissance. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Greg Paxton. Chapter 6, Florence 2, Machiavelli. By L. Arthur Bard. Part 1. By the year 1512, the downfall of the Florentine Republic was complete. Her failure was due to a variety of causes. A form of government, which had worked satisfactorily while remaining outside the general stream of European politics, proved incapable of readjustment to novel conditions, and became an anachronism, more and more discredited as time went on. The character of the Florentine constitution rendered almost impossible any continuity of aim or persistence in policy. The Signoria changed every two months. The Dieci della Guerra, who had de facto the largest control over foreign politics, changed every six months. No state could repose confidence in a government in which political secrets could not be kept and where it appeared impossible to fix responsibility on anyone. From time to time, efforts were made at Florence to remove this source of weakness and the appointment in 1502 of a gonfalonieri holding office for life seemed to many men, including Machiavelli, to have at least furnished some real guarantee for a stable policy. Not only, however, was the notion of a permanent official in variance with the theories of political liberty accepted at Florence, but the new gonfalonieri, Piero Soderini, was in reality unequal to his position, and maintained his authority only at the cost of much unnecessary friction. He was firm only in his allegiance to France. Louis Twelfth, on his part, was indifferent to the real interests of the city, though ready to make what use he could of Florentine assistance in his Italian expeditions. When the French were ultimately forced to withdraw from Italy, Florence was left isolated and impotent. It was not merely the inherent defects of her constitution that weakened Florence. In the city itself there was never during these years any real union. The death of Savonarola neither removed the causes of internal discontent, nor mitigated the animosity of faction. The quarrels of individuals and of parties rendered it difficult to maintain order in the city, or to conduct the daily business of government. The adherents of the Medici family were numerous, rich, and unscrupulous, and in the end proved successful. They were ready, at any moment, to cooperate with any foreigner or Italian who might be an enemy of the Republic. The result was to create general distrust, and to render impossible any combined effort on a large scale. A city so situated could only maintain its independence if its military strength supplied more than a counterpoise to its constitutional weakness. An adequate army and trustworthy commanders were indispensable, and Florence possessed neither. The practice of hiring professional soldiers was general in Italy, and was adopted at Florence. It became the cause of incalculable evil. Not only was the city liable to be deserted or betrayed, even during the battle, by her mercenary troops, but the system necessarily involved a vast outlay of public money and a heavy taxation. By 1503, the financial crisis had, in consequence, become so acute that it was necessary to levy a tithe upon all real property. The evil was mitigated, but not removed, by the military reforms of 1506. Machiavelli, who carried into effect the new system, though the idea did not originate with him, was able, by means of his indomitable diligence and enthusiasm, 
to muster a force of about 5,000 citizen soldiers, but in the end they proved to be of little service. Florence was, moreover, set in the midst of many and great enemies. In the north, Ludovico il Moro at Milan, whether as open enemy or insidious friend, did what he could to damage the state, until he was taken prisoner by the French in 1500, and finally disappeared from Italian history. Venice had long ago abandoned her traditional policy, and been seeking to acquire an inland empire, and, until the Battle of Agnadello in 1509 crushed her power, harassed and impeded the Florentines at every turn. At Rome, both Alexander VI and Julius II were indifferent or hostile to Florentine interests, and Cesare Borgia was believed, probably with reason, to include among his designs the incorporation of Tuscany with his other conquests. And besides the opposition of the larger Italian states, Florence had, during this period, to struggle against the hostility of nearly all the smaller towns in her neighbourhood. Pisa, in particular, was a source of endless trouble. From 1494, when Pisa, thanks to Charles VIII, threw off the Florentine dominion and became a free state until 1509, Florence was at war with her. And any other power, whose object was to damage Florence, was sure to intervene from time to time in the struggle. To meet the dangers which threatened them from outside, and embarrassments and perplexities within the city, the Florentines possessed no statesmen of commanding ability or acknowledged preeminence, and no generals with real military genius. There were skillful diplomatists and mediocre captains in abundance, and even men who, like Antonio Giacomini and Niccolo Caponi, might under more favourable conditions have proved efficient commanders. But, speaking broadly, at Florence, as in most cities of central Italy, intellect had outrun character and the sterner virtues were almost unknown. The corruption of which Machiavelli complained so often and so bitterly was to be found everywhere, and, though its effects were naturally most obvious in the military class, it was equally a source of weakness in the political world. The defensive attitude which was forced upon the city by the movements of the larger European powers, and the constant vigilance and diplomatic manoeuvring necessary to combat the shifting designs of Italian neighbours, prevented any elevation of view and rendered inevitable the employment of all the familiar resources of small and weak states in extremis. In the great events of the years 1499 through 1512, Florence played but a subordinate part. When Louis XII was preparing his expedition against Milan, Florence held aloof, awaiting the result of the struggle. While Louis XII was at Milan, ambassadors arrived from Florence. The hesitation of the city to declare her intentions before the event had aroused some distrust in the French but it would have been obviously undesirable, in view of the proposed expedition against Naples, to alienate the Florentines. And hence, an arrangement was, without difficulty, concluded, by which Florence was to receive aid from Louis for the war against Pisa, and in return, to supply him with troops and money, October 12, 1499. Thenceforward, the fortunes of Florence were intimately linked with the fortunes of France. In the campaign of Cesare Borgia against Imola and Forli, there was nothing which directly menaced Florence, and when the Pope secretly endeavoured to influence Louis XII against the city, he was unsuccessful, and Louis gave definite instructions that Cesare was to do nothing detrimental to Florence. But it was becoming clear that the Borgian policy, insofar as it tended to consolidation, was a menace to the Republic, for even if Tuscany were not directly to suffer, one strong neighbour would take the place of many feeble ones. While these events were in progress, the Florentines had devoted their best energies to the war against Pisa, 
but they were unable to make any real progress towards the capture of the town. In the summer of 1498, they had hired Paolo Vitelli as their general, and in 1499, it seemed as though Pisa would be forced to capitulate, but Vitelli failed at the last moment, and paid for his blunder with his life. Things became still worse when, in accordance with the agreement concluded at Milan, October 12th, some Swiss and Gascons were sent by Louis XII to the assistance of the Florentines. The Gascons soon deserted, while the Swiss mutinied, and Louis XII blamed the Florentines for the fiasco. It was in connection with these events that Machiavelli was sent to France. He was unable to obtain any satisfaction, and it was not until three years later, 1504, when the French had been defeated at Naples, and the danger threatened by Cesare Borgia had passed away, that Florence was able to resume operations with any vigour. After the settlement of the Milanese question, Louis XII was occupied with the preliminaries of his expedition against Naples, the treaty by which he and Ferdinand of Aragon agreed to conquer the Neapolitan territory and divide it between them, was concluded on November 11th, 1500, and ratified by the Pope on June 25th of the following year. It affected Florence insofar as it implied an assurance that Cesare Borgia would not be molested by France in prosecuting his designs, but Louis XII had hardly yet perceived the scope of Borgian ambition, and there was, for the moment at least, no certainty that a collision with Florence was impending. At the end of September, Cesare started for the Romagna, and after a series of successes which placed him in possession of Pizarro, Rimini, and Faenza, sent to Florence to demand provisions and a free pass through Florentine territory. Without, however, awaiting a reply, he advanced to Barberino, and there renewed his demands, at the same time requiring the Florentines to alter the government of their state. His object was to secure Piero de' Medici more closely to his interests. This demand was not, however, insisted upon, as the restoration of the Medici was hardly practicable at this juncture, and, even if practicable, appeared likely to throw more power than was compatible with Cesare's interests into the hand of Vitellozzo Vitelli and the Orsini. But he pressed his demand for a condotta from Florence, and this was conceded, the Florentines also undertaking not to hinder his enterprise against Piombino. Such was the position of affairs when he started for Rome in June, in order to join the French army now advancing towards Naples. His work was successfully continued by his captains, and he returned early in the next year, 1502, to take formal possession of Piombino. The next six months witnessed a further development of the Borgian policy, and the Florentines began at length to realize in what peril they stood. It is not possible to determine with precision how far Cesare Borgia's movements during the year were definitely premeditated, considering the complexity of the conditions under which he was working, his actions could not be settled long beforehand, but they were necessarily adjusted day by day and in the face of momentary opportunities or emergencies. From Piombino, he returned to Rome, leaving military operations in the hands of Vitellozzo Vitelli, acting in conjunction with Piero di Medici. Vitellozzo was able to effect the revolt of Arezzo, and rapidly made himself master of nearly all the places of any importance, northwards as far as Forli, and southwards as far as the shores of Lake Trasimeno. At Florence, the news of the revolt was received with consternation, and the alarm became general. It was clear that the city itself was being gradually and systematically shut in. Cesare's idea was to bring under his control all the country which lay, roughly speaking, between four points, Piombino, Perugia, Forli, Pisa. The lines of country and towns which connected these four points were now practically secured to him, for on the south, the district between Piombino and Perugia was already won, and Pandolfo Petrucci, lord of Siena, who situated about the midway between the two points and a little to the north, might have hampered his designs, had been brought over to his interests in 1501. The country along the eastern line from Perugia to Forli 
was won by the rebellion of Arezzo and the Valdichiana. On the north, from Forli to Pisa, his hold was not quite so secure, but Pistonia, ever rent by faction, could offer no effective resistance. Luca was avowedly Medicean, and the Pisans definitely offered their city to Cesare Borgia before December 1502. About the coastline from Piombino to the mouth of the Arno, there was no need to trouble. It seemed, therefore, as though everything were ready for an immediate and crushing attack upon Tuscany. The situation of Florence was not, however, so desperate as it appeared to be. There were still a few places of importance lying outside the eastern line from Forli to Perugia, which might, at any moment, prove troublesome to Cesare. Of these, the most notable were Urbino, Camerino, and Perugia. The latter he could afford to disregard for the moment, as a signore, Giovan Paolo Baglioni, was serving in his army, and at the time seemed trustworthy. But Urbino, which blocked his way to the eastern coast, and might cut off communication with Rumini and Pizarro, which he had held since 1500, had to be subdued. The same could also be said of Camerino, as the point of junction between Perugia and Fermo. Cesare was, moreover, already aware that he could not trust to the loyalty of his mercenary captains. Seeing how town after town fell before him, it was inevitable that they should reflect how their own turn might come next. They distrusted their employer, and he distrusted them. Conspiracy and treachery were bound to ensue. The notions of right and authority had ceased to be regarded on either side, and the vital question was, who would have the dexterity and cunning to overreach his antagonist? Lastly, Louis XII was still the most important factor in the impending struggle. There had recently been some grounds of dispute between the Florentines and France, Louis complaining that he had not received proper assistance from the city during his Neapolitan campaign. But the misunderstanding had been removed by a new agreement, April 12, 1502, and the king had undertaken to supply troops for the defence of Florence whenever necessary. The French had no intention of allowing the Borgia to become masters of Florence. In that event, the road to Naples would have been blocked by a new power, commanding central Italy from sea to sea. The capture of Urbino by Cesare Borgia at the end of June was an unmistakable revelation of his designs. It was at this juncture that France intervened and obliged him to suspend operations. It became necessary to temporize, and he entered into negotiations with Florence. Arezzo and the other places which he had conquered in Tuscany were reluctantly restored to the Republic. But at the end of July, he went in person to Milan to have an interview with Louis XII and succeeded in effecting a complete reconciliation with him. Florence was, however, relieved from immediate apprehension. It was at this critical moment that the threatened conspiracy of Cesare Borgia's captains broke out. The exasperation which the Borgian projects had aroused at Florence led the conspirators to hope that the Republic would espouse their cause, and, after making themselves masters of the Duchy of Urbino, they appealed to Florence for assistance. But as soon as the existence of conspiracy had become known, both the Pope and his son had, in their turn, applied to the Florentines, and asked that ambassadors might be sent to confer with them. Machiavelli was deputed to visit Cesare Borgia, and remained with him till the end of following January, 1503. The arrival of French troops for which Cesare Borgia applied to Louis XII, and which were readily furnished, forced the recalcitrant captains to come to terms, and they were allowed to take service with him as before. But the hollow reconciliation deceived no one, and Machiavelli in particular had opportunities day by day to trace the stages by which Cesare Borgia, who never trusted twice to men who betrayed him once, lulled his opponents into a false sense of security, and finally took them prisoners at Sinigalia. December 31st. The ringleaders, including Vitellozzo Vitelli, were put to death by his orders. Thence he withdrew to Rome, where he arrived early in the following year. 
the year's work had not been, on the whole, unfavourable to the Borgias. Florence, on the other hand, had suffered seriously, and the incompetence of the government was generally obvious. The reform of 1502, which, carried as a compromise and supported by academic reasoning, provided for the election of Gonfalonieri to hold office for life, did something to revive the spirits of the inhabitants and met the wishes of Louis XII, but it added nothing to the real strength of the Republic. In the Neapolitan territory, disputes had arisen between the French and the Spaniards, and all northern Italy watched with anxiety the progress of the war. The defeat of the French at the Battle of Carignola, April 28, 1503, had a marked effect upon the policy of the Pope, who began, in consequence, to incline toward Spain. But on August 18th, all of the Borgian designs were cut short by the sudden and unexpected death of Alexander VI. His son was ill at the same time, and unable to do anything. The politics of the Italian states were thus completely disorganized, and Florence, in common with others, looked anxiously for the election of the new pope. Pius III's short reign of less than a month was without real influence upon the position of affairs. On November the 1st, he was succeeded by Julius II, whose election Cesare Borgia had not been able to prevent. With Julius II, a new period begins not only in the history of Italy, but of Europe. Florence had now nothing to fear from Cesare Borgia. On the death of his father, he lost all his possessions except the Romagna, which remained faithful to him for about a month. He had governed the district with justice and integrity, and won the affections of the inhabitants, but his inopportune illness was fatal to his prospects. The Venetians, always on the watch for opportunities to enlarge their inland empire, obtained possession of Faenza and Rimini. Pizarro returned under the rule of its former lord. Imola and Forli surrendered themselves to the Pope. By the end of January 1504, Cesare Borgia was forced to sign an agreement by which he abandoned to Julius II all his claims on the Romagna, in return for permission to withdraw wherever he might wish. In the spring, he arrived at Naples, and, taken prisoner by Gonzalo, was conveyed to Spain. He was killed in battle in Navarre, 1507. But, whatever advantages the Florentines might have derived from the disappearance of Cesare Borgia, they were more than counterbalanced by several other events. The final defeat of the French at the Battle of Garigliano, December 28, 1503, placed the whole of southern Italy in the power of Spain, and the movements of Gonzalo, who was known to be willing to help Pisa, were a source of constant anxiety to the Republic. The presence of the Venetians in the Romagna, the ignorance which yet prevailed as to the intentions of the Pope, and the want of troops and of money, combined to produce a situation of extreme gravity at Florence. Within the city itself, there was much discontent with the government of Soderini. He was, it is true, acceptable to the masses, having been able, by rigid economy, to lighten somewhat the burden of taxation. But the leading families in the state were irritated by neglect and by the filling up of the signoria and colleges with persons who were either nominees of the Gonfaloniere or too insignificant to offer effective opposition to his designs. His chief supporters were to be found among the younger men, recently embarked upon political life and beginning to win a reputation for themselves. Among these, Machiavelli in many unpretentious ways of immense service to Solarini and, though sometimes disagreeing with him, proved ready to subordinate personal opinions to what seemed the general interest of the state. This was clearly seen early in 1504, when an attempt was made to reduce Pisa to extremities by diverting the course of the Arno. The plan had been strongly urged by Soderini, and was supported by Machiavelli in his official capacity, though he had little hope that it could prove successful. Ultimately, it had, of course, to be abandoned. The French defeat at Naples naturally aroused hopes that they might be driven from Milan also. The Cardinal Ascanio Sforza, 
brother of Ludovico il Moro, was now at Rome, and bestirring himself vigorously to win assistance in recovering the duchy. The project could not succeed if Florence blocked the way, and Soderini was too devoted to France to ever entertain the idea. Ascanio, therefore, turned for help to Gonzalo, and an arrangement was made, by which Bartolomeo d'Alviano, one of Gonzalo's condottieri, was to invade Tuscany, and to restore Giovanni and Giuliano di Medici to Florence. When this was accomplished, the Medici were to help reinstate Sforza at Milan. This intrigue had hardly been matured when Ascanio Sforza died. Bartolomeo d'Alviano, however, continued to advance, but was defeated by the Florentines in the summer of 1505, the Republic thus escaping from a very serious danger. So elated were the Florentines by their victory that they followed it up by an attempt to storm Pisa, but Gonzalo sent a force of Spanish infantry to defend the town, and the attack had to be abandoned. The regular failure of so many repeated attempts to overpower Pisa disheartened the Florentines, but their hatred was insatiable. Everything tended to confirm the opinion to which many men had been long inclining that success could only be achieved by a thorough reform of the military system. The year 1506 witnessed the actual carrying out of a scheme which was to supersede the employment of mercenary troops. Machiavelli was the leading spirit in the whole movement. He was supported both by Soderini and by Antonio Giacomini. A national militia was instituted, and a body of troops enrolled at the Contado, they numbered at about 5,000, and were mustered before the close of the year. A new magistracy, with the title Innove della Milizia, was formed to manage all affairs connected with the militia in time of peace, while the authority in time of war would, as usual, rest with the Dieci della Guerra. Machiavelli was, in January 1507, appointed Chancellor of the Nova della Milizia, and the main bulk of the work connected with the levy and organization of the new troops fell to him. During the following years, Florence enjoyed a period of comparative repose, while Julius II was occupied with the designs which did not directly concern Florence. The subjection of Perugia and Bologna, the War of Genoa, and the early operations of the war against Venice left Florence to pursue her own designs, unattacked and unimpeded. But, when in 1510 Julius decided to make peace with Venice, the consequence was a collision with France, and it was also clear that the Florentines would become involved in the struggle. To this they might, however, look forward with some measure of hopefulness, for they had at last, 1509, reduced Pisa to submission, and one long-standing cause of weakness and waste was thus removed. The year 1510 witnessed the first stages of the conflict between the Pope and France. At Florence, it was common knowledge that Julius II was hostile both to Soderini and to the Republican government, and that he already entertained the idea of a Medician restoration. The difficulties of the situation were not lightened by Louis XII's demand that the city should definitely declare her intentions. The danger from the papal troops was at the moment more directly pressing than any other. To declare for France would not only have exposed the Florentine territory to an immediate attack, but would have also alienated the sympathies of all those citizens who dreaded a conflict with the head of the church, and wished also to stand well with the Medici. The city was full of antagonistic parties and irreconcilable interests, and an abortive conspiracy was formed to murder the Gonfalonieri. In order to gain time, Machiavelli was sent upon a mission to France. On his arrival at Blois in July 1510, he found Louis XII eager for war, and inclined towards the idea of a general council which should secure the deposition of the Pope. This council actually met in the following year, September, and although consisting of only a handful of members, held three sessions at Pisa, the Florentines allowing the use of the town for that purpose. It was powerless to harm Julius II, who replied by giving notice of a council to be held at the Lateran, 
and thus, ipso facto, disqualified the Council of Pisa. It served, however, to embitter the Pope against Florence, and both Florence and Pisa were placed under an interdict. During the winter of 1510-11, to Julius II successfully continued his military operations, until his progress was checked by the appointment of Gaston de Foix to the command of the French forces, in conjunction with Gian Giacomo Trivolzio. Throughout the spring, reverse followed reverse, and by June the Pope was back in Rome. Indeed, if Louis XII had permitted it, Trivulzio might have followed him unhindered to Rome itself. Had he done so, France would have commanded the whole of northern and central Italy, and once more cleared the road to Naples. Knowing this, Ferdinand of Aragon had, so early as June 1511, made proposals to Julius for the formation of a league to check the progress of the French. The idea, momentarily delayed by the illness of the Pope in August, was realized in October, and on the 5th of that month, the Holy League was published at Rome. The contracting parties were Julius, Ferdinand, and the Venetians. The ostensible object was the defense of church interests and the recovery of church property. The command of the Allied forces was entrusted to the Viceroy of Naples, Ramon de Cardona. Whichever side proved victorious in the inevitable struggle, the result would be equally disastrous to the Florentine Republic. Soderini still represented what might be considered the official policy of the state, friendship with France, but his authority was growing steadily weaker, and the collision of parties made any combined action impossible. It was the Battle of Ravenna, April 11, 1512, that finally cleared the situation. Though the French were victorious, the death of Gaston de Foix deprived them of their most efficient general, and they were henceforward helpless. By the end of June, they were driven from Lombardy, and ceased, for the time, to exist at all as factors in the politics of Italy. Florence was at the mercy of the Confederates. The supreme moment had come. End of section 20 Recording by Greg Paxton